What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Welcome back, listeners, to our final episode of the season. And we are wrapping things up with a condition that is, according to dad, underdiagnosed, and that is celiac disease. But before we get into it, I just wanted to set the scene that dad and I are in separate hotel rooms somewhere in the Swiss Alps. We're still recovering from a big hike a couple of days ago. How's the view from your room, Dad? It's beautiful. I can see the Alps and the green trees. The scene is magnificent. It's very nice and relaxing. It's a difference from being in the city in Dubai. 100%. Dad, you insisted we record an episode on celiac disease. Why? Celiac disease is very common. It is underdiagnosed. You know that it is affecting about uh, at least 1% of the population and maybe more. 30% are properly diagnosed. And sometimes it takes from six to eight years to have a diagnosis, like my patient, if you remember her. And yeah. it's coming more and more in Eastern countries in the Middle East. So it is, it is coming disease which should be diagnosed and to keep it in mind because it's a very serious disease. So before we talk about what celiac disease is, maybe it's, I thought I would just give people a bit of rundown, maybe some basic biology because celiac disease mainly impacts the the small intestine. I'm just saying mainly because I think when we talk about symptoms that can manifest not just in your small intestine, but there are different other manifestations. But for those of you who are unaware of what our small intestine does, It measures around six meters. So your small intestine is a primary site of nutrient absorption. When we eat food, it enters the stomach where it's broken down into smaller pieces. And then from there, the partially digested food goes all the way into your small intestine. So the small intestine has these special um, finger-like projections or structures called villi and microvilli that increase its surface area. And now this large surface area allows for maximum absorption of nutrients. So another important role, let's say, of the small intestine is as the food travels through the small intestine, it encounters various digestive enzymes and chemicals that further break down these food particles into even smaller molecules. And so these molecules can include things like your protein, your carbohydrates, and fat. Now, the villi and microvilli in the small intestine have tiny blood vessels called capillaries and lymphatic vessels. And these blood vessels absorb the nutrients from the broken down food. And then the broken down food, or let's say the absorbed nutrients. So that's, you know, after it goes through all this, you know, digestion. So the carbohydrates will be broken down into things like glucose. Protein will be broken down into amino acids. These are transported into your bloodstream. And then from the bloodstream, they're carried to different parts of your body to provide energy and nourishment. 
So this highlights how crucial the small intestine is when it comes to living in general and just being nourished. So dad, in celiac disease, what is it and what happens? You know, you said this affected the small intestine. And when exposure to the gluten is an autoimmune disease, as you know, when a specific protein, the gluten, which contained in wheat, rye, and barley, when it comes to the small intestine, it damaged this tiny finger-like projection. What did you say? You the villi. The villi, yeah. Okay, this villi eventually become inflamed and flattened. We call it a villus atrophy. And it will not absorb the nutrients, as you said. It will not absorb the calcium, the fat-soluble vitamins, vitamin E, D, and E, and K, right? And then this poorly functioning villi will decrease even the production of lactose enzyme. So you have temporary lactose intolerance. So it's the wide range of problems which come from this celiac disease. So for those who are perhaps unfamiliar with what an autoimmune condition is, um, the way I'd like to explain it is, if you think about our immune system, it is our body's defense system. So it helps protect us from harmful things like bacteria and viruses. Now, usually it does a great job of telling the difference between what's harmful and what's not. In the case of celiac disease, so something goes wrong with the immune system, there's a glitch. It starts to mistakenly attack a part of our own body called, just like I said, the, the small intestine. And normally, our immune system produces things called antibodies that fight harmful invaders. But in celiac disease, the immune system produces antibodies that attack a specific protein called gluten, just like you mentioned, which is found in wheat, barley, and rye. Now, I know I talk about barley a lot as you know something that you should include, but in celiac disease, that would be one contraindication where you should not be consuming barley. Um, so when someone with celiac disease consumes a food that contains gluten, these antibodies are triggered and they start mistakenly attacking the lining of your small intestine. And then over time, this immune response damages the small intestine, just like you mentioned, that the villi become destroyed and flat, making it harder for the body to produce, uh, sorry, to absorb important nutrients from food. So this is why celiac disease is actually known as an autoimmune condition because the immune system mistakenly attacks your body's own tissues in response to, to gluten. That, if we're talking about, it is autoimmune in nature, but is there a, a, a genetic component to it? Yes, you know, it's hereditary, meaning it runs in families. This genes affected the, uh, some people, and it's so the people with first degree relative celiac disease, like the parents, child, children, sibling, they have one in 10 risk of developing celiac disease. So if someone so, in your family is diagnosed with celiac disease, is it always worthwhile getting a test done before having to have an endoscopy? To check for celiac definitely. disease. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll talk about the diagnosis later, but definitely they have to be screened for celiac disease. And what are the common symptoms? Symptoms of celiac disease is wide range of symptoms. Okay, that's why it is underdiagnosed. Okay. So people can actually be misdiagnosed, right? Like I think some of your clients, so you've said some patients in the past were diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome when in fact they've actually had celiac disease. 
That's right. And even be- before we go to the symptoms, I tell you about why it is underdiagnosed. Because it, first thing, it causes broad range of symptoms, which is confused with other more common illnesses like Crohn's disease, irritable bowel syndrome. So if the doctor doesn't click that we have to rule out celiac disease, it can be missed. I myself, always, I check if the patient comes with symptoms of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, I'll do, I have to rule out celiac disease. And another point is the many people, they have no symptoms at all. So we have to have this in mind as well. And we have no screening program, even for high-risk people. So this is as well, it's not under, that's why it's under that. Another important thing, the friend of the patients, Google, Dr. Google, which, like, you remember one patient, the dietitian told her just, Keep away from gluten, lactose, and you will be okay. Yeah. So if the patient started to have gluten-free diet, he will have symptoms much improved, but he will be misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or not diagnosed at all because he will not or she will not be on strict gluten-free diet. And the disease progresses will go on till we have the complications. Okay, so being on, obviously, because there's this huge trend of being on a gluten-free diet, so because people are adhering to this gluten-free diet for a very long time, perhaps if they get screened for celiac disease while they're on a gluten-free diet, we might get more false negatives. And, okay, so if anyone's suspecting, or if you do want to screen properly for celiac disease, you have to actually consume gluten for a specific period of time before you actually do the screening to get an accurate diagnosis or like the, the first stage, basically. That's true. So let's get into the symptoms, Dad. Um, what are the sort of things that we have to look out for? The symptoms I'll talk about the symptoms of celiac disease in adults and then in children. First thing, there is common symptoms, which is accordingly they are common with other illnesses, other diseases. As in they're overlapping, basically. They overlap with other conditions. Bloating, abdominal pain, weight loss, constipations, nausea and vomiting. These symptoms are common, but we have to keep in mind that it might be celiac disease. There is another symptom in adults, which is not related to the digestive disease, but we have to be very careful with it like iron deficiency anemia symptoms. Itchy skin, there is some specific skin disease which is associated with celiac disease. Osteoporosis and osteomalacious symptoms, mouth ulcers, liver disorders like fatty liver, headaches, migraine, sometimes missed periods, and numbness of the fingers, we call it peripheral neuropathy. And some mental problems as well, mental disorders, which is maybe due to celiac not related to problem and we some people with something called ataxia which is not the the gate is not straight and in one case and there's some reported cases that this it was due to celiac disease so is that all i mean i assume that would be related as well to all the nutrient malabsorption that's happening and we'll talk about that probably when i talk about the, the nutrients that are crucial to be screened for um, because they do play a role in mental health and brain health. So if you're not absorbing a lot of these nutrients properly because of celiac disease, these symptoms manifest as, let's say, mental health struggles. Yeah, that's, that's true. And, and how is children? it different in children? Yeah, how is it different in children? In children, 
the child or baby, it doesn't, usually they don't explain themselves properly. But the mothers and parents has to be very careful and to think about it. If the child has got bloating, constriction, diarrhea on and off, pale, foul smelling poop is very important. Sometimes vomiting, weight loss. This is the main thing in children. And if the celiac disease in childs with the deficiencies they are carrying on during this period, you will have anemia, you will have uh, delayed puberty, failure to thrive, short stature. All of this you have to be, the mother or the parents have to look for this and think about it. And another important thing, if your your child is it's got some problems with the ADHD, which is yeah. the attention deficient hyperactivity disorder, it might be the celiac. So we have to look for this. And sometimes the child has got difficulty in learning. You have to think of celiac. And as we said, a slow growth of the child. But we have to pay attention that not everyone with celiac disease will have all the symptoms. Okay. So it's very so specific to the person. So we have to look for all of this. And the parents have to be very careful and to look for children and don't take it as granted. This is a, a, an active child or hyperactive child. We have to think of celiac. I think that would be, you know, it's a very good point to make. And just again, raising awareness because we, I'm not going to say we don't know any better as parents, but I think, again, I don't want to blame the hospital <laughs> system. Or like the pediatricians and so on, because they don't have so much time with the parents or with the patients. But again, I don't feel, based on my own experience, that celiac disease screening is actually a common thing that many people do. I'd be interested to maybe open this up for discussion if someone's got any behavioral problems or if someone's got any sort of mental health struggles. I personally always advise to get full blood work done just to check all the the vitamins, you know, making sure the vitamins and minerals are well topped up because deficiency manifests in things like irritability, bad mood, um, depressive moods, headaches, and so on. Um, And I think even when it comes to children as well, I've seen that in the past where, yes, celiac disease was missed, but there were a lot of, it wasn't just, you know, the symptoms weren't just confined to gut problems. So you've had kids perhaps maybe with constipation. I remember back in the day when I used to work in the hospital, we've had um, children that were diagnosed with ADHD, but also had got problems alongside that too, like diarrhea. But celiac disease was never, you know, they never screened for it until I think the doctors were like, okay, what else could we look for? And that was by chance basically added to the screening request. And it was indeed celiac disease. Okay, so let's say the symptoms are numerous and let's say very, very broad. What does the diagnosis look like? So what does it look like? To diagnose celiac, you have to be uh, to take history. Family history is very important and go in detail. There is some, sometimes you go for uh, questions and answer or to go on with the patient who suspected celiac disease. And then when we suspected by clinic, Clinically, so we have to go for serology test, which is the antibodies of uh, celiac disease. There is about five or six. We choose 
the most common, which is almost 70 or 80 percent present is celibacy, and we take them. We do okay. them. If they are positive, we have to have a tissue diagnosis. It means we have to go for the endoscopy and take biopsy, and then we can see the the result of the biopsy. And even by endoscopy, there is specific picture of the celiac disease in the starting from the second part of the genome or from the genome from first part to the second part, which third part. This is for the specific diagnosis. However, we have to do another screening for full blood count for anemia. We do something called CRP or serum axis protein if there is inflammation. We have to do the uh, vitamin B12, vitamin D. We have to do your function test. This is the as a screening test. We, of course, we can uh, don't over investigate the patient, but we have to do important things. Isn't it best to over investigate than under investigate? We have to investigate according to the patient, not over investigate, not under investigate, not to miss anything. Okay. Because we have to do to see a patient who's got iron deficiency anemia or not, because it's common with celiac. Yeah. We have to see it's affecting the liver or not. And sometimes we we need to do another imaging, like uh, if there's sometimes you know that it affects all the small intestine. And sometimes if we and it's sometimes it's patchy. So we have to take the biopsies as well from different areas. Sometimes we have to know the extent of the disease. And so we can do the imaging like uh, sometimes capsule endoscopy, sometimes just, uh, which is capsule endoscopy, you swallow a camera and it will go through all, Your digestive tract. all the small, yeah. usually the small intestine. This is, this is important. And the last thing is the genetic testing. Just in specific cases, and some can, not everybody with celiac disease will go for genetic testing. And usually it is for uh, clinical trials and study. But in some cases, we have to do a genetic testing as well if it is. Because later on, we, we got something called refractory celiac disease. So we have to know where we are. That's mainly this is the uh, an idea about the diagnosis. And when you've come to the diagnosis of celiac disease, what do you do with your patients? What's the next step? I call you. <laughs> okay so the next step and this is where the diet, i think dietitians play a massive massive role i mean obviously with every case in gut health but with celiac disease management i feel like nutrition plays a, a very crucial role here yeah of course stubborn do you want to talk about the treatment now or you, you want to talk about the sometimes you have to uh the complications I was going to say, let's, we can talk about nutrition for a little bit because I just want to mix it up a little bit. And then we can talk about, I think with the complications, we can mix that up as well with all the, the challenges that a lot of people face with celiac disease. Because I believe just based on experience, when you get that diagnosis of celiac disease for the first year, it is actually very, very challenging, both mentally and having to follow a very strict diet is not as easy as it sounds. So again, this is where I know you always advocate for a multidisciplinary approach. And this is where I also, you know, the role of the gastroenterologist, the role of the dietitian, even sometimes some form of therapy can help as well. Because, you know, if it's your child that's been diagnosed with celiac disease, that alone comes with its own challenges and social challenges too. 
So these, I would say three people on your GP, just to make sure that your nutrient levels are within range, should be part of your, let's say, long-term support team. So when it comes to the management of of celiac disease or the role of nutrition, I like to break it down into, let's say, three main parts. And I don't want to confuse people so much, but just like you said, the cornerstone of celiac disease management is a lifelong adherence to a gluten-free diet. Gluten is a protein found in wheat, so gluten-containing grains such as wheat, barley, and rice should be avoided. The role of the dietitian here is to offer, you know, gluten-free alternatives. And because of the gluten-free craze that we currently have had for many years, it's no longer impossible to ask for or to find gluten-free alternatives like rice, corn, quinoa, gluten-free oats, and all these alternatives. I mean, we have gluten-free pasta now in hundreds, I would say. The choice is endless. And the main purpose of a gluten-free diet is to help in symptom control or resolving your symptoms but also to promote intestinal healing and reduce the risk of complications, which we can talk about with you, Dad, in a second. The thing that many people don't realize, though, and I feel like perhaps this is where nutrition education has a a very, very big role here, is it's not just about gluten avoidance. The second thing that I need to highlight is gluten contamination or cross-contamination, because the tiniest traces of gluten can actually cause problems. So, it can trigger the uh, symptoms, is it? Exactly. Well, I would say yes and no because I've had clients say, yeah, but I'm, I'm completely fine even if I do consume gluten here and there because it's been very challenging. But I feel like, again, that, correct me if I'm wrong, it can be a buildup. So they might not have the symptoms then and there because not all my clients have diarrhea. But let's say three months of not adhering to a gluten-free diet, once they go back for a follow-up endoscopy, they do notice that there's a little bit of damage of their intestine, but it's manifesting in different ways, whether they're, you know, they're having nutrient absorption, uh, malabsorption, for example, or iron deficiency. So this is why I would say, you know, cross-contamination, you'll need to avoid cross-contamination of gluten-free foods with gluten-containing foods during things like the storage, preparation, and, and even cooking of meals. So My role here is to remind people of, you know, using separate cooking utensils and cutting bowls and things like your toasters, deep fryers. You need separate cooking tools from gluten and gluten-containing products. And then label reading, that's another thing that we have to educate all our newly diagnosed patients or clients with celiac disease is how to read food labels to identify hidden sources of gluten. So the first, as I said, just a quick recap, Strict gluten-free diet that's lifelong. Second thing is to educate around avoiding cross-contamination. And the third thing is correcting any nutrient deficiencies. So again, Dad, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say a lot of the times where there's a large percentage of people that do have some form of nutritional deficiency at diagnosis due to malabsorption. Definitely, yeah. Sandra, now if uh, if I am in a restaurant and I'm good celiac, this menu said it's gluten-free meal. So do I have 100% that it's not contaminated? Absolutely not, unless it's a certified gluten-free kitchen. So in some restaurants, for example, here in Switzerland, when you go and ask for gluten-free pizza, they would actually ask me, do you have celiac disease? And I would say no. They're like, okay, because we cannot guarantee that it's 100% gluten-free because we do use the same bench as gluten-containing flour. So unless... So this is why I'm saying it comes with its challenges, Dad, because eating out tends to be the most challenging thing. And also, 
for school children, you know, if that is, again, I'm not a pediatric dietitian, but this is a whole challenge in itself. So this is why I would say, you know, communicating your needs, doing your research in advance. There's lots of different websites out there that can tell you which restaurants, depending on your destination, are certified gluten-free and are celiac friendly. So there are restaurants out there that do declare that. Going back to the nutrition, you know, that third part, which is the nutrient deficiencies. I mean, you mentioned iron, but we do have, you know, the things that I need to check out for would be iron, calcium, vitamin D, all your B vitamins, including folate and B12, zinc, magnesium, your fat-soluble vitamins. And then we talk about fiber because gluten-free diets can be lower in dietary fiber. And, you know, that can backfire because that can affect your digestive health and bowel regularity. So I think this is where the role of the dietitian comes in to prevent any nutrient deficiencies. And if we are deficient, to correct these deficiencies, either via supplementation, but also educating clients on, you know, food first policy. So where to get their sources from food. You mentioned that the manifestations or the symptoms can be neurological. And this is where I also highlight, you know, B vitamins are extremely important for energy production. So I would call them your energy vitamins, but they're also your mental health vitamins. So for example, if a person's deficient in B12, which can occur, so malabsorbing B12 can occur in celiac disease, that can actually lead to, to anemia, neurological problems, and even fatigue. The other thing is zinc. You know, zinc deficiency can also be seen uh, in celiac disease, and that can impact a person's growth. So when we're looking at children, it can impact immune function and even wound healing. So if you happen to diagnose with celiac disease, these are three very important, let's say, topics or themes that you have to address with your registered dietitian or clinical nutritionist. That's good. Yeah, uh, by the way, Sandra, sometimes we, uh, in, if I patient diagnosed now with the celiac disease and severe iron deficiency anemia, I, we, sometimes we give him or her intravenous iron because the absorption would be okay. Or vitamin B12, or we can give it intramuscular as well. So yeah. it depends. When they started, we have to give them a push with the injectable vitamins and iron. Absolutely. And I think it depends on the level of deficiency. So going yeah. for an iron infusion or let's say B12 injections, that just like you said, it's 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 crucial to top up these stores before we even address, you know, the food sources. So it's correcting that deficiency first. That's true. There is a point which is, you know, as you said before, this autoimmune disorder. So we have to be careful or to put in mind that other autoimmune disorder, it might be associated with celiac, like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, type 1 diabetes, Down syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, this MS, multiple sclerosis, autoimmune hepatitis, a lot of autoimmune problems which can be associated with celiac disease. They have to keep this in mind as well. Yep, I mean, we talk about that a lot. Well, I do mention that, sorry, in the book, where we talk about this gut thyroid connection. And I think the biggest example there is that anyone diagnosed with, let's say, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and this is where your, again, your body attacks your thyroid gland. A lot of them should be screened for celiac disease because Hashimoto's is an autoimmune condition. Celiac disease is an autoimmune condition. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition. And we are seeing that a lot of them can coexist together. 
And there's a lot of talk about the gut thyroid axis as well, which, which I talk about in the book. But yes, yeah, so this is another food for thought that if you are living or if you have been diagnosed with underactive thyroid or even Hashimoto's thyroiditis, that I and my dad would personally recommend you get screened for celiac disease. What would be the last thing you'd want to add, dad, especially when it comes to the complications of celiac disease? What are they? A lot of complications of celiac disease is not discovered as not treated. I don't want to frighten people or something, but it's a lot of complications. It is infertility and miscarriage is one of them. Uh, malnutrition, cancer, including intestinal lymphoma and small intestinal bowel cancer. Nervous system complications, seizures, pain, numbness, peripheral neuropathy, pancreatic disease. Osteoporosis, which is the weak bones. So these, I was going to say, are these complications of celiac diseases not diagnosed? Not treated, not diagnosed. Okay, not treated, not diagnosed. Like any common or chronic disease, sometimes the patient presents with complications. So we have to catch these patients before the complication starts. That's why the awareness of celiac disease is very important. Do you know that uh, the month of May, it was the awareness month of celiac disease. So we are one month uh, beyond, but it's good. <laughs> Just, uh, it's good to let people aware that celiac disease is an important one. Celiac disease is a very important chronic disease, undiagnosed in many circumstances. Any symptoms, which is we said before, you have to look for it. Keep an eye on your child and any abnormal behavior, any symptoms which is new for the child, you have to look for it and ask your doctor or your provider to hint about celiac disease. We have to be aware of that celiac disease exists and it is common. And we have to keep it in mind always when we are seeing patients. That's the main thing. And the treatment, as you said. See, definitely see a diet. You have to see a dietitian to walk you through these steps and to to help. I'm not going to say lessen the burden, but to help you navigate all the challenges that you may face, especially in that first year of being diagnosed with celiac disease. Another point, please, 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 don't start gluten free diet without diagnosis. <laughs> even if you're definitely, even if, if unless friend, it's been medically your, justified, uh, your Google, your uh, artificial intelligence, or something. <laughs> <laughs> try, try use your your self intelligence before the artificial intelligence and think about it. <laughs> because going on gluten free diet without diagnosis, it will be your, you. You can miss out. Yeah, on the diagnosis. Okay, you but can. Yeah. Uh, can I talk now? <laughs> yes, you can. You can end this session and uh, we'll be going. Well, we're ending this season. I was going to say, but before, I mean, before you wrap up, I just wanted to say a thank you to all our listeners that hung around for this long. And we are starting to plan our second season. Um, so if you do have any specific topics, do let us know. Um, you can send us an email to info at nutrition-az.com. I'm going to put that in the show notes because we would love to hear about what you want to learn more about when it comes to gut health. And also, 
As my dad always ends every episode, please don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe and rate us because it makes a massive, massive difference um, to these podcasts. So once again, have a good day, everyone. And we are going to see you back on here with our second season. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.